Hello and welcome to Why They Win, with me, your host, Ben Wilson. My goal is simple, it's about you, but, but it's also unbearably self-centred. I want to work out why some people succeed where most of us fail. What is it in their heads that's making them great and me inconsequential? What are their tricks? What are their tips? What are their routines that can make me and you not just good or great, but actually world-class? If you've ever struggled to make hard decisions, you'll love today's guest. Philip Mudd was the Deputy Director of the CIA and FBI's Counterterrorism Unit. It was up to him to translate reams of conflicting data on terrorism to President George W. Bush. How did he do this? By using a strategy of analysis he devised and then detailed in his new book, The Head Game. It's now an easy-to-use system of analysis he uses in everyday life, and he joins me today to describe how you can too. What I found fascinating uh, um, about both the book, yourself, and the line of work you're in is, is exactly what you say in the book. There's so much information coming at you, um, and it can be overwhelming. I don't understand how you'd make a decision, how you'd progress in your career. And, and I feel that that book, really, that approach really breaks it down very well. I thought my job was to artfully present a lot of information. And after about 15 years, I realized, you know, it's actually not that relevant. I mean, I, it, it's as if you were to go to a, I forget what you all call real estate, to an estate agent. Yeah. The estate agent would say, let me give you a perspective on the real estate market across London. And over a half an hour with brilliant graphics, you get, a, you get an artful display of the London real estate market. And at the end of half an hour, you might say that was all well and good, but I kind of wanted to see if there's a three-bedroom, two-bath place near Chelsea Market. So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely. The decision advantage is the phrase in the book for the. It might have been a brilliant demonstration of knowledge of data, but it's not relevant to offer a decision maker an advantage. So it it sounds simple. It's really hard to train analysts to do that. In terms of your this concept of problem solving, I mean, how does it work in practical daily terms? In practical terms, I, I think you have to think about how all of us enter a particular job. We enter thinking we'll become experts, expert estate agents, in my case, expert in Al-Qaeda. And I thought my initial job was to summarize everything I knew. How can I tell somebody at the White House or the Department of State or the Defense Department everything I know about the Al-Qaeda problem in the time I have allotted? And finally, I had people keep looking at me, including the President of the United States, saying, what do I do with this? This is interesting. This is well presented. Those are interesting graphics. What do I do with this? And I quickly came to realize my job wasn't to present them what I knew. My job was to understand what they were trying to do and then to summarize for them my knowledge so that I could give them an advantage in decision-making. A simple example would be you could present to the President of the United States a bunch of information. Here's all the threat information we're receiving. 
interesting presentation. Or you can say, here's the threat information we're receiving, and if you want to take action, here's how to put it into perspective to determine how urgent it is. Hmm. It's more urgent. It's, if it's less urgent, you might not want to take action. So the first presentation is data. The second presentation is what I came to understand is decision advantage, how to help somebody make a decision. Um, and it's quite interesting. You, you mentioned um, not being biased. In the book, you say, you know, you, you break it down first and then you come at it from uh, from the opposite angle. I mean, so so let's say um, giving us the scenario of, I don't know, uh, someone wants to choose a family car. How, how would you approach that? Well, I, I think some people might walk into that conversation and say, I saw a nice car on the street the other day and, you know, maybe that's a car we ought to buy. Or you might say, you know, I like sporty cars, maybe we should buy a Jaguar. I came at it saying, look, what's the question? How do I understand the characteristics of car that, cars that meet my needs? That's a simple question, whether you want to buy a Jaguar or you want to buy a Ford, same question. Then you say, okay, what are the characteristics of cars that meet my needs? Gas mileage, roominess, reliability. What's the accessibility of the local garage that sells that brand so I can have ease of repair? I came to realize if you broke questions down into simple, what I call baskets, it made problem solving much easier. Instead of saying, let me understand the universe of cars I might buy up, uh, uh, across the, the, the world or in the, in the city, I might say, I want cars that meet the following characteristics in these categories, mileage, roominess, reliability, and slowly but surely, problems became more manageable. Same, by the way, quickly on the problem of Al-Qaeda. You could have an analyst saying, we're doing well, or against ISIS, we're doing well. And I'd say, what does that mean? I want you to tell me, are they winning or losing geography? Are they winning or losing leadership? Are they winning or losing recruits? Before you give me a qualitative assessment on whether or not we're winning overall in the battle against ISIS. So, so how long would you take forming that question? Because to get to that main question is, it is half the battle, isn't it? It is. I, I didn't realize for about 15 years of my career that how important the question was. I thought the question was pretty straightforward. Let me present what I know. And I came to understand the first question is, what kind of problem are we trying to solve? For example, is the president trying to understand threat data? I don't think so. I might have thought initially in my career he did, but I don't think so. He's trying to understand, is the threat data significant enough for me to change the way America deals with the ISIS problem? That's a very different question. Mm. So it, uh, it took me maybe, again, 15 years to realize to start with a question and not the data. What am I trying to understand and why? And then I realized to really get it that most analysts get really frustrated spending time on the question. Half an hour, an hour, two hours, you have to sit down and say, do we really understand? Do we want to gain market share, for example, or do we want to lower prices? Do we want to beat the competition, or do we want to expand the areas in which we are um, setting up shops? All these are different questions. Instead of just saying, what's the competitive marketplace in London, for example, I would say, exactly what are you trying to accomplish? And that takes more than most analysts want to spend. They want to jump to the data initially because analysts and experts love data. They mm. don't like messing around with questions. So what happens? Do you, do you ask a top-line question and then drill down and answer it and then answer another question and then drill down and do that for a few hours until you get the main question? Yeah, the process, I thought, was, was iterative. Uh, the first question you have to ask is, what decision are we trying to affect? For example, if you, you could say, mm. let me characterize 
the, the ISIS presence in Syria? That's a good expert question. That's a horrible question for a good analyst to ask. The question is, what are the characteristics or how do we affect ISIS in Syria with a standoff capability? In other words, without putting troops on the ground in Syria. That's a very different question. Again, the first question is simple. Let me characterize ISIS. The second question, let me, how do I understand those characteristics of ISIS that I can affect? So you start saying, is it leadership? Is it equipment? Is it training facilities? Is it their, um, is it their operational center in Raqqa, in the capital of ISIS in Syria? And then I break the question down again, iterative. So if I decide, I think the most effective way we can degrade ISIS without putting troops on the ground is going after their headquarters in Raqqa. I would start the process again. What are the characteristics that will allow me to degrade the headquarters in, ISIS, in, in Raqqa most quickly? Is that, is that destroying buildings? Is that killing people? Is that targeting the checkpoints around their major facilities? So I came to realize that, 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 that I could become much more efficient as an analyst if I invested more in understanding exactly what I was trying to do before I started answering any questions. It's like, don't get in the car without knowing where you're going. That's mm. a mistake. So, so is there a chance that you could come up, have a, have a problem and you go, okay, I need to answer the question. And then I keep uh, drill down, drill down, drill down. When do you know it's the time to do the baskets? I think any question you face is a question that, that, that any, any problem you face is too big or most problems, too big for your mind to juggle the various the pro, the, the elements of the problem, the baskets of that problem that you need to understand to solve the problem. That sounds theoretical. Let me give you a quick example. How do we understand the threat of ISIS? Now, an expert will walk in the room and say, here's everything I know about ISIS. I would say, hold on a minute. There's a lot of information for your brain to digest. Mm. Let's give it a crutch, an advantage. If we want to understand the threat of ISIS, we better understand their money flows, their recruits, their leadership, their geographic scope, the penetration of their ideology. So before you come and give me a human assessment, make sure you look at all those characteristics. What I thought, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, is we do this in every way, everyday life. You might instantly, without thinking, look at a car and say, of course, the issues I'm going to look at are reliability, price, size of the car. Um, and then you might say, okay, based on those characteristics, this is a car that I want to buy. I found repeatedly in work life that people would walk in my office and say, let me give you a, a, an understanding of the threat from ISIS without going through a methodical process to say, here's the eight characteristics we, we need to understand to assess that threat. Again, money, leadership, how much geography they control. People came in and gave me sort of idiosyncratic understandings of threat without telling me, here's the eight variables I'm assessing to come with that to come up with that analysis and i thought it was a really inefficient way to do business because we kept having analysts say well i've been doing this 15 years i think this <laughs> and another analyst would say i've been doing this 20 years i think something else so so does it does it mean that um do you have to be quite quite lacking in emotion as you go through it because obviously confirmation bias and you know your own one's own kind of bias might come into it do you have to be quite clinical i, I think the example, you could say, I love the lines of that car, which is a sort of emotional judgment about that car. I saw it in a James Bond film. That's a really cool car. I want to buy it. That's okay. All I would argue is before you get to the point where you're adding emotion into a conversation, for example, 
the response to the to the horrible terrorist attacks in France is let's go bomb them. Mm. That's a very emotional response to a horrible loss of life. My first question would be, hold on a second. Instead of saying immediately, obviously the right answer is bomb them harder, isn't, isn't it? How do we understand the different levers we have against ISIS that might hurt them most? Is it bombing their supply lines? Is it destroying their sources of finance? Is it trying to locate their leadership and using point precision weapons to destroy their leadership? At the end, you can say, you know, really, these are a couple things I wanted to, 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 to degrade ISIS, but the French people demand emotional response, so I'm also going to bomb them. That's fine. Emotion is part of every conversation. All I'm saying is at the front end, before you jump to emotion, try to have an understanding of what question you're trying to answer and what the six or eight or ten characteristics of the, those questions are. And then you can jump to emotion. So for a car, it's price, roominess, um, reliability. At the end, you might say, you know, this car has beautiful lines. It doesn't meet the characteristics I think are important. But at least I know that going in. I'm buying it because the lines are great and it looks beautiful, and I'm going to pay the price at the back end because it's horribly reliable. It's, it's going to break down every six months. That's fine as long as, you, as long as you go through the process to eliminate emotion at the front end. So uh, you have the question, and then you have the, the you saying in the CIA, six to ten baskets is enough, those sub-baskets. I, I think so. The, the, the term baskets to me is just those characteristics you use to assess a problem. So when I was looking, I used to, used to struggle with the question of how big a threat is al-Qaeda? Or a better question, how do we understand whether we're degrading al-Qaeda? And people would bring, the analysts who work for me would bring a great deal of emotion to the table. We're crushing these guys. We're hammering them. We just eliminated another al-Qaeda leader on the battlefield yesterday. We're succeeding. That's a very emotional, intuitive, unanalytic approach to a problem. And I started to say, well, with any problem, I think before you walk in my office and give me an emotional answer, let's figure out how we assess that problem. So if we're determining whether we're beating al-Qaeda, some of the questions would be, are we eliminating the leadership at a rate faster then they can replace leadership. Another question would be, are we seeing an increase in their commentary privately, for example, the intercepted emails and phone calls that we have for al-Qaeda, where they're complaining about drone strikes? If they're complaining more than they were last year, that's a pretty good indicator to me, unemotional, that they're getting hurt more. Are we seeing a decline in the number of recruits they're able to get because uh, they don't have enough security to recruit people. In other words, they can't train people because they're running around all the time. I came to realize that after you get to about 10, 6, 8, 10, maybe maximum 12 characteristics to understand a problem, if you think the 13th is critically important, I can't believe that's true. Once you get beyond the 6, 8, 10, 12 characteristics, I think you're starting to look at characteristics that by definition are below the radar that you shouldn't be worrying about. So I started to limit the number of characteristics, regardless of the problem I was focused on. Beyond 6, 8, 10, 12, that's enough to look at, even if you're looking at what wife to marry or what lady to marry. I mean, once you get the most important decision you ever make, is she nice? Is she kind? Is she attractive? And, you know, once you get beyond 6, 8, 10 characteristics, you're like, you're down at my ankles. <laughs> the thing is, uh, you do stress in the book that, look, this sounds like a lot of work. 
firstly it clicks into place and you once you get it you get it but 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 also it's so worthwhile doing the work yeah no that's right you know I, i wish i could claim that i knew this early on in my career i joined the cia when i was 24 years old we weren't trained to do this i thought being an expert was equivalent to being an analyst so i thought if i could just absorb more information and present it well that automatically means that i'm an analyst and I started, when I was dealing with the White House, for example, realizing that I would present them information, and they'd say, well, what do you want me to do with that? It just, I, I just took me forever to realize my first question isn't the information, it's what kind of problem are we trying to solve? So I, I, I found that this was a more efficient way to attack problems, but it took two things. Number one, it took the patience at the beginning to say, do we really understand what question we're trying to solve here? Mm. And that is harder than it sounds. And number two, it took practice. This sounds easy. It sounds ridiculously easy. And then you find in everyday life, if you ask the question, how many people, when I meet them every day, are presenting a lot of information about what they know without first asking, what kind of decision are we trying to affect? It happens every day. It's not as easy as it sounds, and it takes a lot of repetition. You also make the point, um, if I'm right, that when you ask the main question, and then you have the subcategories, the six to ten subcategories, that that there are inevitably going to be um, gaps in your thinking where you may not under may not have the art the right answer for that basket on that subject. So you have to go and do some research. So there was a, there was some color coding going on. How does that work? There is well. Looking at this question of whether we're degrading ISIS, for example, which is something I spent a lot of time thinking about, and you say, you know, to understand whether we're degrading ISIS or how we understand those areas that we can bring more sort of NATO power to bear on, should we be attacking leadership more? Should we be attacking their training facilities more? You might break that question down into categories. For example, are we are we beginning to degrade ISIS? That has to do with geography. Do they have less territory or more? That has to do with leadership. Are they? Are we eliminating their leadership faster than they can replace it? That has to do with recruits. Are they getting more or fewer Western Europe, European recruits than, than they used to get? When you break those baskets down, you start to say, okay, which of those do we? are we confident we know the answer? Are we sure we know how many recruits they're getting well enough to assess whether that recruitment pipeline is slowing or accelerating? Here's an interesting one. Um, their morale. Are we sure we understand whether these NATO airstrikes are defeating morale or or is it hardening morale among the group of people who believe that they're ordained by God to succeed? What I started to realize is if if you have six or eight or ten categories for understanding whether you're beating ISIS, the next question is, are we confident that we have enough information in those categories to make a judgment? Now, you might be able to make a good judgment on whether ISIS, the flows of recruits from Western Europe, is increasing or decreasing. Western European countries track that. The question of morale, are you sure you understand that their complaints about Western airstrikes mean that their morale is lower? It could mean that they're saying, this is us being tested by God. Perhaps their morale is raised because they feel that a test is an indication that they're on the right track. I came to believe that in each of the categories you use to answer a problem, you have to be very careful about um, realizing whether you have enough information to answer that question. 
And so I started grading each of the categories with red, yellow, green. That is red meaning I don't think I understand this category, morale. I'm not sure I understand what ISIS's morale is. Green, I have a very good understanding of how, much, how many recruits are coming in because Western European security services are tracking this. That, that's how I started breaking it down. And then, then uh, there was the red team as well. Yes. How does that work? The red team, well, the red team process, all of us have, have biases. We want to buy a certain car, so we start to try to grade the characteristics of that car positively. It's actually not that expensive. It's actually, you know, the reliability looks bad on paper, but, you know, they've been improving over time. You make a decision, and then you tr start to have a bias uh, as you take in information to ensure that your decision is accurate. None of us wants to say, you know, I'm not that smart. Maybe I didn't make the right decision. What the book suggests is that if you're dealing with a decision that you're invested in, I'm a terrorism expert myself, a counterterrorism expert. I have a perspective on whether we're beating ISIS. I happen to think we are. And I can step through a process to explain why. And that process is based on looking at characteristics that I think indicate that ISIS is losing ground geographically, ideologically, in terms of uh, European recruits. But I'm emotionally invested. I've already made a decision about this. I think we're winning. And second, obviously, I want the West to win. So what I'm suggesting is when you're dealing with these decisions that are emotionally laden, bring in a separate team that does not have that same emotional attachment, a team that hasn't made a decision, a team that's not experienced in assessing ISIS, and say, here's the data. Here's how I broke the question down. Look at this information and tell me where I'm vulnerable, where I'm trying to explain away uh, data that doesn't really support my position. Give me the top two or three areas where you think there's information that suggests that my conclusion is inaccurate. And that process is called the red team process. And before this, I mean, before... It's terribly boring. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's actually not. I, if you, if you apply this process to everyday decisions, if you want to have fun, have a beer and assess whether or not you're going to buy a car. Ask the question, does this car, or how do I understand whether this car has the criteria that I want? Break those criteria down, cost, et cetera, and then um, see, see what decision you come up with. It, it's actually, I hate to say this as a career analyst, it's more fun than it sounds. Uh, no, I, it sounds I, horribly dry. I, no, it doesn't sound that. I mean, I completely agree. Uh, I have done it for some of the uh, facets of my completely lame life and discovered things and had insights. Um, it, it really, it, it's life-changing stuff. And I'm not just saying that because it, it, I'm interviewing it, you. you know, I, I mentioned the book, the, one of the times the light bulb went on was I was dealing with President Bush, and it was shortly after 9-11. And we had an uh, informant, a, a, a source, a human source who was in Al-Qaeda in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and who came out and was being debriefed by the CIA. He was talking to Al-Qaeda members. And uh, the CIA director called me and said, we're going to go talk to President Bush tomorrow morning about what that source said. What I should have thought on the front end is not, how do I present what that source said? I should have realized the president has to determine whether to do something, whether to go out and tell the American people the threat is lower or higher. And to be able to make that decision, the president needs perspective. How important is this source's reporting in the context of all the other information you receive? So we went in, the, the director of the CIA and I, on a Monday morning to the Oval Office in the White House. And in the space of three minutes, I told President Bush, here's a 
a clinical understanding of who that source is and what he says. Stupid presentation, artful but stupid. The president looks at me and says, what do I do? And I realized instantly the question wasn't, how do I present to the president of the United States in 180 seconds a concise clinical understanding of what the source says? The question is, how do I fit what this source says in the context of all other threat reporting we're getting in? In other words, is this important or not? And immediately I said, the reason we're here is because the source has proven access to al-Qaeda circles, and he doesn't lie. The problem is he offered us no specificity of when an attack might take place, who might do it, where they might do it, and what device they might use to conduct an operation. All he said was, the al-Qaeda guys are talking about the next big attack. So, Mr. President, without that specificity, this is a middle-range threat. That's a hugely different presentation than saying, here's what a source says about al-Qaeda's next plot. I didn't understand the president has to make a decision, and he has to understand how important this threat is. He doesn't have to understand the, the details of what the source said and, and uh, when the source met al-Qaeda. I, I just It was another reaffirmation that you have to start with. What are you trying to understand? Put the threat in context. Don't just give the president the threat information and force him to understand whether it's important or not. It was life-changing for me. But how did you get even to that level? I mean, what, with that level of stress and data in your day-to-day -day life, what system did you have before that? I, you know, it's interesting you ask this is sort of off-topic, but level of stress. I didn't feel a level of stress. And my, my family, for example, asked about that, asked about that, my friends. You know, all of us have jobs, and the jobs have important questions. If you're an investment banker, you have an important job. You're investing money that might uh, be the hinge on which someone's future shifts. Are they going to have a great retirement or a poor retirement? That's a pretty important question if you're investing people's money. I just came to realize that, that as, a, as someone who grew up as, as an expert, you have to have the humility to understand 90% of what you know is not that relevant. It's only relevant if it helps you give the decision-maker an advantage. So is the question where the market's going? I'm not sure that's the right question. Or is the question, how do I ensure that my clients are uh, positioned well for their retirement? That's a really different question. Uh, I, I realized that after 15 years in the service, I joined the CIA in 1985, that I had to have the humility to say, what I know really as an expert is interesting for me. I like to read books. I like to write. It's, it's interesting. But it's not clear that it helps me make, help a decision maker make better choices. Let me start with what his choices are and then work backwards. And so in the book, this is characterized as backwards thinking. Let me start, not start with the data. Let me start with the questions. You, you also mentioned in the book that um, uh, you should do the, uh, the, the, the subcategories or the baskets. And then, if I'm correct, you say also come at it from, from the opposite angle, just for good measure, no matter how disgusting you think that might be. How does that work? Well, what I realized is every, every uh, complex problem is going to challenge you with the question of humility. I think I've gone through a consistent process to give you a good answer to this problem. And I've been doing this for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. The humility 
that's required here is to step back and say, maybe I'm wrong. So the, one of the examples I offer in the book is I used to have a teaching assistant when I was, I was, I, I occasionally teach critical thinking. And my teaching assistant uh, was from Uruguay and his girlfriend was from Uruguay. And they were deciding whether to go back home for Christmas holidays. And so I was playing around in my analytic mind with, with this process. What's my question? How do I understand the characteristics that will decide whether he goes home for the holidays? Characteristics include, does he have enough time? Does he have schoolwork he has to complete over the holidays? Uh, does he have enough money to go down there? So I came up with about eight characteristics I thought I had to understand to get to the answer. How confident am I that he's going to go down for the holidays? I came up with an answer that says, I'm highly confident if I were betting in Las Vegas, he will go home for the holidays. I was wrong. My teaching assistant and his girlfriend did not go home for the holidays. The reason was their visa status would have expired had they left the country, had they left the United States. Right. You need the humility at the front end to say, maybe, I, I knew my teaching assistant quite well. We went out for beers occasionally. I spent a lot of time with him. You have to have the humility at the front end to say, I need somebody else to look at this and ask me, are there things I'm not considering? Somebody from the outside might have said, have you ever considered he's not a U.S. citizen? Have you ever considered whether his visa status might influence his decision? I didn't consider it. So I, I think you just need a lot of humility at the front end to say, you know, I don't care how much experience you have. Maybe I'm wrong. We're always wrong periodically in our lives. Do you, do, does, for someone who teaches critical thinking, um, is this the most evolved version of critical thinking you've come across? I, I know you invented it, so, but, but without being biased, <laughs> is it probably the, the, the most cutting edge? For the listeners, for the people listening, you know, is this the one, do you think? I, I don't think so. Um, I'm not sure. You know, the book was really difficult for me to write because I had started... This is not a CIA book. I trained at the CIA and I served there. The CIA people I worked with wouldn't recognize the process you see in the book. A lot of it is born from making a lot of mistakes. But I, I think there are elements here that apply in any case and that will stand the test of time. I don't think the solution in the book will stand the test of time. Somebody will come up with a better solution. But I kept reading books that talked about bias. They talked about the, the, the fundamental mistakes the human brain made. And the books didn't address what to do about it. Mm. Uh, there's brilliant books out there. The best book I've ever read is a book called Thinking Flat, Fast and Slow by a guy named Daniel Kahneman. That will expose the biases in your brain. But it really doesn't tell you what to do. I think the, the book I wrote was designed to be a first step in saying there is a very simple mechanical way to help your brain work better. But I don't think it's the end. I think it's the start of a process. There, like I say, though, there are characteristics. For example, let me give you one. The book says, never ask a yes-no question about the future. Will Assad fall? I don't know. There's somebody who reads tarot cards who knows. I don't know. <laughs> and anybody who comes in and says, I know what the future is, tell them to go to Las Vegas because they can retire tomorrow. <laughs> What the book says is, if you're going to solve a future problem, is this a company? How do I understand the characteristics of companies I want to invest in? That's a good question. Is this company going to succeed? Well, don't ask that question. I don't know. Don't say that you can guarantee the company will succeed. So 
there are parts of the book where I say I'm confident that whoever writes the next generation of this kind of book will fall back on this. And one is don't ask yes-no questions about the future, but somebody else is going to come up with a more efficient process. And I think it would, you know, for someone who preaches humility to decision makers and to analysts, I think it would sort of lack humility to say this is the end-all and be-all. It's not. It's an interesting book. It was a monstrous pain in the ass to write. But somebody else will sit down and write a better one next year or the year after. Uh, so are there any other, other kind of personal tricks or, or systems that you use in your daily life to perform at, at your level? I, there are a lot of tricks. Um, I can mention two or three that I, I played with over time to test myself. Let me give you a couple. And these aren't systematic. They're, they're not sort of the DNA of the book, but they're tricks that you can employ. The first is... If somebody walks in and talks to you as an expert about a complex problem, watch whether they ever employ the term, I don't know, or here are the, the variables that we're concerned about. If someone walks in and says, here's a picture of this problem that we're trying to solve for tomorrow and never indicates a vulnerability, that's a clue. That's a clue that the person doesn't have enough humility to present the problem in a sophisticated fashion. Number two, I, I learned that if someone comes in with 17 data points on a problem, that's, you, you need to question them aggressively. You cannot make decisions in a sophisticated way that, depend, that, that hinge on whether the 17th data point is significant. There, I, I don't know many problems in life that require you to judge 17 variables to determine what the answer to the problem is. Six variables, eight variables, ten variables. I found that people who came in with 17 variables had not thought through the problem clearly enough. They thought through the data. They didn't through, think through the problem. And the last one is, I'll give you a fun one that I, I, I played with over time. It's really frustrating. was the two-question rule, or the three-question rule, as I talk about in the book. That is, take something that's of interest to you. Whether hemlines are lower or higher this year, whether you like milk chocolate or dark chocolate, whether you like Jaguars or Fords or Land Rovers, and ask a couple of questions. In the book, I mentioned uh, a, the example of chocolate. I, I personally love milk chocolate. First question, why do you like milk chocolate? It tastes rich. It has this rich taste that it's, it's hard to replicate. I find dark chocolate too bitter. Well, why does it have that rich taste? Already on a, on a problem, whether it's hemlines or chocolate, in question two, my mind is struggling. Why can't I articulate the answer to that? I found, why do I think this team is good? Well, they have better forwards than other teams. Why do they have better forwards? Well, by the time you get to the third question, well, they have better forwards because they're younger and faster. Why do younger and faster better forwards mean that they're better than the other team that has more experienced forwards? By the time it's it's a game and it forces your game to start asking questions that you don't want to ask. It's it's it can be amusing after a couple of beers, but but beware, it can be frustrating as well. Start out with the question of why you like milk chocolate, and I tell you, after two questions, your brain is going to be struggling. <laughs> Given all, all all that you've you've seen and done and accomplished, um, if you were a great 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 grandfather, you know, lived to one hundred and seventy five. And you're on your deathbed and your great, 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 great grandchildren came to you and said, what should I do with my life? What would be the best piece of advice you'd give them? This is simple. Um, 
articulate to me the things that bring you joy and explain to me why you do things that don't bring you joy. For example, uh, I love reading. But just in my personal life, I love reading. I love my family and friends. I love to cook. Um, I love to exercise. I don't have a TV. This sounds Luddite. I have no objection. This isn't some, you know, the hardcore cultural uh, decision about, you know, digital life in modern America. It's not. It's simply, I found what brought joy in my life. I taste wine. I'm a good cook. I spend a lot of time with friends and family. I read. I exercise. About number eight on that list would be saying, I've got a, you know, a 32-inch TV in my basement. I, this is this is not to sound arrogant. It's not to sound anti-digital. It's just to say, understand what brings you joy and invest in that. And if you're choosing things that aren't on your top sixth list of things that bring you joy, ask yourself why. Mm. So I, I just... Um, you know, life is beautiful. You wake up in the morning, you've got food, you've got heat, you've got a, you've got a roof over your head. Whether you make 60,000 pounds a year or 150,000 pounds a year, you have a question that you can answer in the morning. Am I doing things today that bring me joy? And if the answer is no, then you need to ask yourself a question. And the question is why? Why are you doing that? And my, my final question is, um, you know, you, you read a lot of books, um, what three books would you would you recommend uh, to improve people's lives? It could be the, the book you mentioned, or, or any three. It could be total fiction. It's up to you. Boy, three books. Um, I should know the answer to this. I don't. Um, I would say read that book on thinking, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's a life-changing book. Really? Why? Uh, because he articulates what happens in your mind. And about every other page, you'll read something. It's all based on experiments. You'll read something and say, I, I, that makes, I never thought of that, but now that I think about how my mind works, that's exactly right. I mean, he articulates, for example, how to understand anchoring bias. Uh, and I won't get into it, but anchoring bias is something that we deal with every day when you go to the supermarket. So the supermarket says, uh, these are... Uh, one for four dollars, two for five dollars, one for three pounds, two for four pounds. You've immediately said that two for four pounds is a huge deal because the marketer has anchored you in believing that three pounds is the right price. Fascinating. Well, actually, the, mar- the three pounds might be three times what the what the uh, company needs to, to to sell to make a profit but they've immediately suggested to your mind that four pounds is an incredible deal. You're anchored in that three-pound price. So he goes through 300 pages, or actually uh, the author and his his, uh, partner in experimentation, explaining how your mind works. Um, Just for fun, The Waning of the Middle Ages, one of the best history books I've ever read. I love history. Uh, Just a great, fascinating history of how the Middle Ages declined. And the third book, yeah. I love biography. I love to read history through somebody else's eyes. The autobiography of Keith Richards. <laughs> really? Why? You're gonna think you're gonna think it's uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That book is thoughtful, interesting, fun. If you're going out on a holiday at Christmas over the summertime and you want something, we're gonna say this is. I'm gonna eat some cotton candy, and still feel like I got something fulfilling. 
Keith Richards' autobiography was terrific. It's the last book I read four years ago. I woke up at 6 a.m., 10 p.m., finished the book. Fabulous. Oh, really? It's terrific. Fantastic. Long live the Rolling Stones. (laughs) (laughs) This show has been produced by Joseph Wilson for Social Hand Grenade Productions. Check out his comedy show, The Social Hand Grenade Podcast, also available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Podbean.